Good morning again. If we've not met yet, my name is Mitchell Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 12? We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 37 today. Matthew chapter 12. Last week, we saw the Pharisees lash out at Jesus when the crowds were wondering whether he might be the Messiah. Instead of confessing him as the Messiah who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Pharisees said that his power came from the devil. Jesus then told us about the one sin that would not be forgiven, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The text this week follows directly from that interaction with the Pharisees. Jesus is still speaking to them in these verses today. But He uses their speech as an opportunity to tell us where sin comes from. The Pharisees didn't just make a mistake or have a slip of the tongue. Their words revealed what was in their hearts. And so today we're going to look at our hearts and what Jesus teaches us about our hearts, that they are the governing center of our whole person, and that they are the spring that everything in our whole life flows out of. That's going to cause us to ask some hard questions about how we can change and what hope we have when our hearts are wicked. But the good news that we've already seen today is, for, is that for all those who come to Christ, He has given you a new heart, So that's where we're headed today. Before we hear from God's Word, let's ask for His help. Would you all go to our Father with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love Your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear Your Word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can, you who, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this text today, I want us to ask three questions that Jesus is directing us towards. The first one is where does sin come from? That's where we're going to see what Jesus says about the heart. Secondly, we're going to ask, how can we change our hearts? And then thirdly, what do we do with our words? The first thing that we learn here is where sin comes from. That's the main point that Jesus is making, specifically about the Pharisees. 
Verses 34 and 35 contain the summary. He says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus has been preparing his hearers and us for this point for a long time now. He spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about righteousness that is perfect or complete. And by that, he didn't mean people who never sin, but people who have integrity, wholeness to their living. And so he spoke about how the law doesn't just command us not to murder, but not to hate people and call them fool. It doesn't just command us not to commit adultery, but not even to lust after someone in our hearts. It's not just what you do in public that God cares about, Jesus says, but also what you do in private, even in the recesses of your heart. Jesus said all that in the Sermon on the Mount without directly condemning or addressing the Pharisees. He was teaching generally about what God is seeking. And then the Pharisees show up and they hide behind their, their questions and their concerns about the law. But what we saw in the passage last week, when they claimed that Jesus had a demon instead of the Holy Spirit, is that they have finally shown their true colors to everyone around them. Their hearts have always been rotten, but they've worked hard to cover that up. That's why Jesus is telling them in verse 33 to either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make it bad and its fruit bad. He's not saying that because they actually have the power to change their own nature, as we'll see in a minute, but because they are hypocrites. They are two-faced. They try to produce good from evil hearts. And Jesus says to them, stop pretending. Stop trying to trick the people around you about what is inside of you. Either be good or be bad. And now Jesus says their pretending is up because their words have revealed what is truly in their hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this teaches us something important about where sin comes from. Sin comes from the heart. Jesus uses the metaphor of a tree and its fruit. Remember, he used that same metaphor back in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. He says that a tree is known or recognized by its fruit. And the idea is that you might walk up to a tree and not really be sure what kind it is. I'm pretty bad with trees. I can't tell a maple from an oak or an apple tree from a peach tree. But even if I walk up in the dead of winter and can't tell an apple tree from a peach tree, even I can't miss the difference when they have apples and peaches hanging from them. And we need to trace out that metaphor. It's hard to know what is inside of a person. It's hard to know what kind of nature they have, what their true identity is. Jesus says that you will be able to tell by looking at their fruit. Fruit in the Bible, as we just saw in our reading from Colossians this morning, is generally a metaphor for the way that a person lives, their actions, their works. Jesus specifies that here, though. He says the fruit that he is talking about is their words. 
A person's words, he says, will show you what their heart looks like. But we need to be careful. We're using a metaphor to talk about human nature, but we're also using a word that is easily misunderstood. Heart. The Bible uses the word heart just under a thousand times. 850 in the Old Testament and 156 in the New Testament. And the problem isn't that we don't use that word. We use the word heart a lot. That person has a lot of heart. She has a good heart. He's cold-hearted. He's tender-hearted. She broke my heart. He gave me his heart. I said that from the bottom of my heart. We use the word heart a lot, but we need to see that we use it somewhat differently than it is used in the Bible, because if we miss that, if we miss that difference, we are going to miss what Jesus says about where our sin is coming from. In our culture, we typically use the word heart to talk about our feelings or our emotions. When someone tells you to follow your heart, they're telling you to obey your gut instinct, to follow the path that feels the best. And the Bible does include our emotions or our desires in the way it uses the word heart. But it's much more than that. Craig Troxell, who is a pastor and professor at Westminster Seminary, has written a wonderful book surveying the way that the Bible talks about the heart. And his summary definition is that the heart is the governing center of a person. It is used generally to refer to our inner being or our nature. But in the Bible, that includes our mind, our desires, and our will. In other words, the heart describes what we know, what we love, and what we choose. The Bible talks about the thoughts of the heart. It also talks about the desires of the heart. And the hardness of a person's heart is typically talking about their refusal to make the right decision. Our mind, our desires, and our will are all wrapped up in that one biblical word, heart. Notice how the way we typically talk about the heart chooses one of those things, our gut feelings, and pits it against the others, usually the mind. We talk about making a decision with your heart instead of with your head. When every Disney princess movie says to follow your heart, they mean that you should do that as opposed to thinking rationally about what decision is best. And instead, make that decision based on how you feel. Seeing this difference is important to understand what Jesus is saying about the heart here. He doesn't mean that the Pharisees are impulsive decision makers. He doesn't mean that they speak from the heart without thinking it through. He doesn't mean that they let their emotions lead them. He means that their sin comes from their inner being. It comes from their nature. He says it in verse 34. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? That's a statement of identity. He's not talking about one part of them. He's talking about them, their nature, and saying that their heart, their nature, is evil. That is why their fruit is evil. The Bible teaches that your actions must flow out of your nature. It cannot be otherwise. 
This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The Apostle James says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? The answer to all those questions is no. The internal identity of a thing produces what is seen on the outside. Your actions come from your nature. If you have an evil heart, you cannot stop evil actions from coming out of it. If you have a good heart, you cannot stop good actions from coming out of it. And the reason this is so important is because of what it says about the way that we change. We live in a very self-help culture that's taken on a bit more of a therapeutic angle recently, but that's always been the case. We are DIYers. We are people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which is physically impossible. We want to be a self-made man or woman. But notice what Jesus is saying about how change really occurs. If your actions are bad, Jesus says, it's because your heart, your nature, your inner self is bad. You have a bad nature and it produces bad actions. And our culture wants to say the opposite. We want to say that we are all a product of our actions. So if you do bad things, it makes you a bad person, we would say. We have adopted a blank slate understanding of human nature. We pretend that we are all born neutral. And so we have the ability and opportunity to make whatever we want of ourselves. If I do good things, we think, I'll be a good person. If I do bad things, I'll be a bad person. But that is not what Jesus or the rest of the Bible teaches. Your actions flow forth from your nature. Whatever your nature is, your actions will reveal it. The tree is known by its fruit. Notice what this means about how you can change. Our culture says, again, you do bad things, and that makes you a bad person. In order to change, you need to start doing good things, and then you will be a good person. That's what our culture says. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be a self-made man or woman. Change the way you live, and you will change yourself. But the Bible says the inverse. You do bad things because you are a bad person. You have a bad heart, a sinful nature. What you need if you want to change is a different heart, a new nature. And then, and only then, will you begin doing truly good things. This is what we heard in our assurance of pardon today that Ryan read from Ezekiel 36. It's a prophecy of the gospel to come. Beginning in verse 26, Ezekiel says, speaking for the Lord, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God gives us a new heart, a new nature, one that is directed by the Holy Spirit, not by sin 
and corruption. And notice that the result of the changed heart is a changed life. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Another place that we see this very clearly is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. If you have your Bible with you, I'd welcome you to turn to Ephesians 2 so that you can see this clearly. Paul begins by saying in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he tells us why we were living that way. In verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our sinful actions came from our sinful nature. But listen to the gospel in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Our nature was dead, and now it is alive. No longer a dead heart of stone, but a living heart of flesh. And just in case we miss the order of things, or who was making the change, Paul makes it clear in verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your changed nature is not a result of doing better things. You weren't made alive with Christ after checking off a list of good deeds. No, God in His great love for you and by His amazing grace took your dead, sin-corrupted heart and made it new by uniting you to Jesus. That's what grace is. It is God working in you without you earning a bit of it. But did you notice the end? The change in our lives wasn't a result of our works but it does lead to good works. You were created in Christ Jesus. That's the new birth. That's the new heart. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is fruit. This is the fruit of a changed heart, a nature that is made new by God's grace. The theological word that we use for this is regeneration. Regeneration, that's what the Bible teaches about the way that people can change. We don't change from death to life by cleaning ourselves up or by New Year's resolutions. We change only by an act of God. One important application of this is with ourselves. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, please don't miss this. The right application to everything that you've heard this morning and everything that you've heard in the Bible is not go start living a better life. It's not clean yourself up and then come back. No, that's not how it works. When you see your sin and you see that you cannot change yourself, the right application, the right action is to come to Jesus. Come to Him. He's the only one who can lift that burden off your back and strip the guilt from your record. 
He is the only one who can give you a new heart. You cannot clean yourself up. Jesus must do it. And then, just as we saw in Ezekiel and in Ephesians, a new heart always results in a changed life. So if you don't know Jesus, come to Him and ask for His grace and His help. That's the only way to salvation, and that is the only way that you can change. But another important thing to say is that we need to be careful that we don't oversimplify what the Bible teaches in a more nuanced way. Jesus speaks directly and starkly to the Pharisees here. He says in verse 35 again, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. But we need to be sure that we bring in the full teaching of Scripture on this issue. This teaching about fruit coming naturally from our heart doesn't mean that no one with an evil heart can ever do good things. The Bible teaches that every person is made in the image of God, and even our sinful nature can't cover up the remnants of that image. So people who are dead in their sins will still have the goodness of God shine through them in different ways. They'll show love for their neighbor, or selflessness, or loyalty, or diligence in their work. Those things happen all the time. Sometimes, unbelievers do those things better than Christians. But what the Bible teaches is that because those things don't come from a love for God, they can never truly be good. And they cannot overcome the sinful heart. And so even though they may do good things that we would call good towards the world and people around them, the natural disposition of someone with a sinful nature, their native tongue, what naturally flows from them, is sin. In the same way, a good heart isn't completely free of sin yet. It, it has been cleansed and changed, but even a heart that has been cleansed still has the remnants of sin on it. Christians still sin. We don't always produce good fruit. We still act in selfishness and deceit and sometimes do horribly wicked things. The Bible doesn't teach some kind of Christian perfectionism in this life. If you are a Christian, you will fail. Sin will still remain present in your life. But your native tongue, your natural disposition, isn't evil anymore. It's good. What by nature flows forth from the heart of a Christian is righteousness and mercy and love. The sin that lingers isn't a part of your nature anymore. It's an imposter, a trespasser who doesn't belong. And so sanctification, this work of growing in righteousness and good works, which also includes killing your sin, that work is actually being true to who you are. Because Jesus has given you a new heart, your war is not against yourself and your nature. It is against an intruder who doesn't belong. There is absolutely discipline involved in this. You have to fight those intruding sinful desires. You have to say no to ideas and longings that don't belong. But you are not denying who you are. You are not suppressing your true self. You are freeing your true self 
from the sin that doesn't belong in you anymore. A sinful heart will always end in sin. A changed heart, a renewed heart will always end in righteousness. And while this has application to all of our lives, Jesus particularly connects it to our speech, our words, what we say. He doesn't just say, out of the abundance of the heart, the person acts. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he says more about our words in verses 36 and 37. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Remember, we just saw what the Pharisees did last week, just a few verses ago. After determining in their hearts that they wanted to destroy Jesus, they finally said out loud what they thought of him, that he has a demon guiding and directing him. Jesus latches on to the fact that their speech has finally outed them. They'd been hiding behind good works and adherence to the law, but the place that their wicked hearts were finally exposed was in their words. One author I read said that the heart is like a board of trustees meeting in executive session. The meeting is private, and so people outside the meeting don't know what's going on. But usually, what happens behind those closed doors somehow gets out. The information is eventually leaked. In a similar way, he says, as much as we may want to try to keep the secrets of our heart locked up, it is only a matter of time before the contents come spilling out. The first in line to spread the word is our mouth, the chief ambassador of the heart. The Pharisees have worked hard to keep the evil of their hearts locked up and hidden, but their mouth is the ambassador that has told their secrets to everyone. And we all know this to be true in our own lives. How often do you say something mean or harsh, or unkind, and you say, oh, that's not what I meant. But what we usually mean is, that's not what I meant to say. I do really think that, I just didn't mean to let you know that I think that. And what Jesus says here is that those words don't go unheard. What you say is always being listened to and a record kept of it. It's not by Big Brother or some secret agency. It's by the God of the universe. He hears and knows every word that you say. And at the end of all time, there is going to be a day of judgment where not just everything you've done, but every word that you have said will be laid before you. We've said that the words of our mouth reveal the nature of our heart. And so it's not just horrible things and blasphemy against God that will stand against you. Jesus says every careless word or every empty word. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin or the deservings of sin is death. And that doesn't mean that our sin will be put on one side of the scale and all of our good deeds put on the other side and we'll see which way the, the scale tips. God doesn't command a net positive from us. He commands sinlessness. And James tells us that even if you keep the whole law, 
but fail in one point, you have broken all of the law. That's why Jesus says that even the littlest word exposes the sin in our heart and it condemns us. That is what will happen to you on the day of judgment if Jesus has not forgiven you of your sins. Every one of them will stand against you in a court of law to verify the eternal judgment that you deserve. But that is not the case for Christians. For those of you in here who are Christians and you tremble at the very thought of every word you said standing before you on the day of judgment, you do not need to fear. What did Jesus just say in the last passage? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Jesus came into the world to save His people from their sin. Remember that great promise from Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The day of judgment will not sort between those who have lived a really good life and those who have lived a really bad life. It will not sort between those who have sinned really big and those whose sins aren't that big of a deal. No, it will sort between those who have been forgiven by Jesus and those who have refused Him, whose sins still hang over their head. Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, then not one of your sins, not one of your wicked words in the past, present, or future will condemn you on the day of judgment. The reason we know this is because they have already condemned Jesus in your place. His forgiveness was not a cheap forgiveness. He didn't wave the magic wand and say that your sins don't exist anymore. No, sins must be punished. And so Jesus went to the cross and was punished for every one of your sins. And so we know now why there is no, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because your condemnation was absorbed by Him. Christian, when you read about the judgment that sin deserves, it should sober you. But it shouldn't terrify you. Because every bit of that judgment that you deserve was taken by Jesus in your place. Your words will justify you. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so your standing with God, your acquittal and acknowledgement on the day of judgment are absolutely sure. Because you won't stand stained by your sins, but you will stand dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what we must know about the judgment that is to come. But that isn't the only thing that we need to know about our words. Jesus forgives our sins. He forgives our evil words. But remember where we begin, talking about trees and fruit. Out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins. He changes our nature. He gives us a new heart. And just like we saw in Ezekiel 36 and Ephesians 2, the new heart will result in a changed life. A good tree will produce good fruit. So what kind of speech, what kind of words will flow forth from a regenerated heart? The Bible has a lot to say about the kind of speech we will have as Christians. The book of Proverbs is a treasure trove of wisdom 
for our speech. But instead of looking at every passage that talks about good speech, I want us to see how this is so clearly shown in Christian worship. If you notice, you say a lot of words in a worship service. And I know you've heard me say it before, but we need to remember that worship is not just an expression of what we feel. It's also a training ground for our hearts. In worship, we are practicing renewed ways of talking that are fitting to a renewed heart. There are three especially that I want you to see. First, and most importantly, our worship trains us for praising God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end, the ultimate purpose that God created every person for is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Worship trains us to glorify God with our mouths. You may come in, you may have come in here this morning complaining and frustrated, but the first words out of your mouth may be, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Instead of pouring forth despair, you spend your time singing, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Worship trains our mouths to sing praises to our God. But we don't just speak to God in worship. We also speak to one another. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And we practice this in worship. You may think that the passing of the peace is just an excuse to say hi to your neighbor or to make visitors meet people before they leave. But what are we saying to one another? The peace of Christ be with you. Not the angst of the world or the despair of your sins, but the peace of Christ. When we sing, Colossians 3 tells us that we don't just sing to God, but also to one another. We build each other up by singing the faithfulness and love of God to each other. And what is said in this room is meant to train us for our speech throughout the week. Your mouth wasn't meant to cut. It was meant to bring life. One final thing that we say in worship. The word encouragement can sometimes be thought of as just making someone feel better. That's not what the Bible means by it. And the way that we know this is what else we are to say in worship. That famous passage from Hebrews about going to church, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some. Do you all know what the whole verse says? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Christian community ought to be a place where we are stirring one another up to love and good works. We do this with the encouragement of the gospel and the faithfulness of God. And notice that final note, all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day isn't the day of judgment for Christians. 
Our day of judgment took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. And so the day to come is now the day of vindication. It's the day of completion. Jesus Christ has already given you a renewed heart. It is one that will and does overflow in words of praise and building up and encouragement. But there will come a day where those words won't be mixed with the words of sin anymore. Your speech won't be harsh and cutting. It will only be that sweet speech of heaven. And so we long for that day together. And we continue to use our mouths to sing the praises of Jesus as we see that day drawing near. Would you all pray with me? Father, like the prophet Isaiah, we cry out, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So we pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your cleansing. We pray that Jesus would continue to make us new. I pray for those in here who have not been given a new heart, who have not come to Jesus. I pray that they would see His beauty and forgiveness and mercy and come to Him so that they may have life. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who sing Your praises, who build one another up, and who stir one another up to love and good works. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen.